Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Strongest Link Supply Chain Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Justin Wilcox. And I'm Marcus Butney. And on this show, we're going to attempt to bring about education or enlightenment on supply chain topics, but in a way that is relatable, digestible, and maybe even a little bit fun. We're not going to get too down into the nitty-gritty calculations or dive into what a hijunkus schedule is or anything like that, but we're going to focus on core concepts that can be observed and enjoyed through stories in everyday life. You know, you don't have to just understand supply chain from um, your your desk at work, right? It's Supply chain is all around us. It's really what makes the magic happen behind uh, free two-day shipping or having grocery stores that are fully stocked. It's all supply chain. It's a, it's a very precise science that we're going to try and break down and make more understandable here. Another goal for this show is to not be just for supply chain nerds like me and Marcus. Supply chain affects every one of us, and I think there are a lot of everyday people out there who don't necessarily work in supply chain, but with all the the coronavirus and the global health crisis that has come with that around the world, everyone is a little bit more curious about what this supply chain function is for sure. So I think we have a pretty good show for you to kick it off this week. First, we're going to go into our weekly takeaways, which are short little bites of news or current events that have some sort of supply chain concept tied to them. So this week we're going to talk about meat prices and the role of complexity in supply chain. We have a second segment called Learning with Leaders. This week, we welcome a very special guest who's going to talk to us about leading a tenured team and the struggles that can come with that, but also what a rewarding experience that can be. And last, we're going to end with a supply chain bedtime story. Yes, you heard that correctly. I can't think of a better bedtime story than learning about how grocers can either make the COVID crisis worse or better. Marcus, I'm going to kick it over to you. Thank you, Justin. So start off, let's go over to the grocery store. Now, when you're walking through the grocery store and past the cookie aisle, you'll definitely see the wall of Oreo cookies and Chips Ahoy and all the different flavors. Within Oreos, there's flavors ranging from red velvet cake to carrot cake to birthday cake. (laughs) And I don't know what they're up to. Is it triple mega stuff you can get? (laughs) There are all these different flavors for this seemingly simple product. And so it makes you think about the complexity of supply chain and all that has to go on to support all those variations, the additional changeovers and logistics and so on. So the company that owns those products, Mondelez, has been looking into that recently with the recent crisis. And in their P1 earnings call, their CEO, Dirk Van de Put, announced that they were going to start to cut SKUs dramatically to reduce the complexity and simplify their business. Now, this is a very interesting position to take during the COVID crisis. Oftentimes, we've seen companies do layoffs and uh, reduce inventory and some other measures, but there aren't a whole lot of companies that have announced this reduction in complexity. Another company that has done this is Coca-Cola, when they said that they were going to eliminate their long trail of products that are low volume. So Justin, what are your thoughts on this reducing supply chain complexity? 
and its effect on long-term customers. First, this is a great topic to start out with because I think it really speaks to a lot of the things that are going on in the world right now and, and will serve to connect supply chain concepts to just about anyone who could be listening. I mean, I, I guess my initial thought is that as a supply chain practitioner myself, I hate complexity. I don't know how many times you know I've tried to implement something as part of a team and complexity is something that either slows us slows us down or holds us back completely. You know, if if you think of a company that is just producing one product, it has one product to stock in its warehouses, one product to market, one product to ship out to all of uh, its distributors, and then you know one product that the end customer is getting. Now imagine a world where you. Uh, have that same company, but they've decided to grow, to gr- to grow and expand, and now they go to two products. So now that's two different marketing budgets, two different um, product lines to keep inventory of, two different product lines to ship out to distributors, and they're all competing for these same internal resources. Because unfortunately, at least in my experience, when companies introduce complexity to uh, meet some sort of customer demand or be the next cool thing to the marketplace. They typically don't really plan for the full implications of that. So you do it with the same warehouses, the same equipment, and you're just kind of stressing that infrastructure out some more. So when I first heard about this story, Marcus, my first reaction was, wow, that's genius. But, you know, I thought about it a little bit more, and as a customer... I really like being able to choose between golden Oreos, regular Oreos, or mint Oreos, or even the 4th of July Oreo. And that has to be my favorite simply because it seems like the most ridiculous one. I agree. So Marcus, I kind of wonder long term, is this actually a a good move? I mean, it's certainly a cost-saving measure, but are people going to to leave their portfolio of of cookies and and cake flavored confections and go to a competitor who maybe is not um, cutting out all that complexity. Yeah. And I think one of the motivations behind this is leading back to the 80, 20 rule where 20% of your product make up 80% of your volume. So I think they're determining the items that make up such a small amount of their volume that to reduce that, I think they're hoping that their customers will go back to those A items rather than getting those 4th of July Oreos, maybe you get the double stuff Oreos. But one thing that the article wasn't super clear on is if they intend this to be a longer term solution or if this is just a temporary solution during the crisis. Which that brings up some more questions because if it is just temporary, reducing the complexity in your supply chain and then re-implementing it would likely be a lot more work than just maintaining that complexity. I think there's going to be an opportunity in that same marketplace for someone else to come in and maybe be that niche player. So this article is very interesting. And by the way, it's through Food Navigator USA. So check out their website if you want to read more. All right. So for our second story today, we're not going to stray too far from the grocery store. In fact, we're not going to leave it at all. Um, One thing that's certainly been on my mind lately have been meat prices and really grocery prices in general. So ever since the COVID-19 health crisis really came to the forefront of everyone's attention, people have been dealing with some sort 
of stress at the supermarket, right? So first it was not being able to get toilet paper. That quickly turned into cleaning products and hand sanitizer. Well, what's happening right now is people aren't able to get meat. And if they are able to get meat, then it's it's far more expensive than they were expecting to, to buy. We have a story here from NBC News. It's a few weeks old now, but um, it, it really captures when this this crisis, or at least this issue, was still um, on a on a huge rise. And the the article states that overall grocery prices are up ten percent. That's huge. Now that that's an overall average. Some things are up a lot more. Eggs, for instance, up sixteen percent. So I, at least when I'm talking to to my friends um, or other people who are maybe not supply chain nerds like Marcus and I. Um, it seems kind of strange because it, it's not readily apparent what the link between a a flu-like virus that's infecting a lot of humans has to do with meat prices skyrocketing, right? And so I, I, th I think what it's important to understand is that the cows, the chickens, the pigs, they're not going anywhere. It's actually the labor constraints the equipment constraints, and, and just the overall logistical constraints at these packaging facilities. So a, a number of things are going on here. First, the obvious one. Obviously, with this health crisis going on, a lot of companies have had to make the difficult decision that in order to protect their employees and, and just the populace in general, they've had to close down or cut hours or at least cut production to implement some social distancing measures. And then there's the additional issue of how demand has significantly changed. If you think about what your life was like before this, this crazy coronavirus came to be, you probably ate out quite a bit more than you're eating out right now. At least that would be my guess. And in fact, that's true for a lot of us. And in fact, when you add all of us together, we have significantly changed the face of food distribution in this country and in the entire world. A lot of us ate a lot at restaurants before coronavirus, and we just can't do that anymore. So what's interesting is when a meat processing facility supplies a restaurant, the product is actually completely different from a supply chain perspective than when you go to buy a pound of hamburger at the grocery store. The packaging is different. Some of the processing itself may be different. Pricing's different. Distribution's different. So what we have now are a set of uh, supply chain infrastructure on the restaurant side that is severely underutilized, while our grocery side, because none of us are able to eat out, is severely over capacity. So that combined with different meat processing facility outages, I guess I'll call them, that has drastically increased the price of meat. But what I will say is that every crisis is an opportunity for someone else, right? So I want to call out two specific uh, industries that are doing quite well amongst all of this. The first is your local butcher down the street. Now, I'm guessing that most of us do actually have a local butcher, at least within perhaps a half an hour's drive. But how many of you ever go to see this butcher? 
Right? It's, it seems like maybe kind of an old-fashioned idea going down to the neighborhood butcher to go order yourself a pig, right? But this is a, a distribution channel that is actually extremely efficient at what it does. It's not able to compete price-wise with large processing facilities. However, it's, it's very vertically integrated. It's, um, it's, it's a distribution method that has really been able to withstand the coronavirus. There's typically few employees, so, so social distancing is easy to implement for one. And local meat processors are making the most of this crisis because their demand is booming. According to Business Insider, local meat processors, just like your neighborhood butcher, are seeing a dramatic increase in demand, which is great for small business everywhere. The second industry that's doing really well amongst all this, and I think it's really interesting, is plant-based meat. I don't know about you, Marcus, or any of our listeners, but I've always been curious about plant-based meat. I, I like the idea of it. But at the same time, it just seems a little strange to me. I mean, why do I want a burger that's made completely out of vegetables? If Why don't I just eat a salad, right? Yep, I think the same way, but I was at the market the other day and thought now's the time to try it. Absolutely. And in addition to that, I, one of the main reasons I had never tried plant-based meat before is because it's so much more expensive than regular meat. It's like, why would I go buy this imitation when I can get the real thing for half the price too? Well, what's re really interesting now is that pricing pressure is actually in the imitation plant-based meat's favor. So companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods are actually killing it right now, especially in grocery stores. According to a story published by Fox Business, the company Impossible Foods, which makes a number of plant-based meat alternatives but is perhaps known f most for its Impossible Burger, has been able to add 22,000 new grocery stores to its distribution network, and its sales are skyrocketing. So, Marcus, I, I gave a lot of information on this topic, and I, I think it's really important for everyone to understand right now. What are some... What do you think about this? What are your big takeaways here? Well, it's one of the things I love about these supply chain stories is we have this supply chain disaster. You have empty shelves and your raw materials are abundant. But whenever there's a supply chain disaster, there's a huge supply chain opportunity. And it's fascinating to watch this all play out. And especially like you talked about with uh, that article from Fox News. Did you say 20,000 stores added? 22,000, yes. 22,000. It's incredible how dynamic supply chains need to be to capitalize on those supply chain disasters that can turn into opportunities. Absolutely. And in addition to Impossible Meats, I think it's going to be a really great opportunity for all the local meat processors out there. I'm, I'm really hoping that people will get reacquainted with these, um, with these places and start to use them even after the, the COVID situation is over. Because I think it's really important to support small business, obviously. But from a supply chain perspective, local meat processors, in my opinion, are set up in a much better fashion to handle crises and disruptions like this. I agree. But one of the things that these local processors will need to keep in mind is when this crisis ends when we're back to a semi-normal state, much of their demand may go back to the larger companies. And that is such a good 
uh, point, Marcus. If they start pouring uh, just a ton of capital into new equipment before they, they're assured that their demand patterns will remain stable long into the future, they may soon find themselves in a situation where they don't have the revenue to uh, support the payments on all those big investments they just made. For our next segment, we're doing something that I like to call learning with leaders. And this week, I am extremely excited for both our guest and our topic, which is leading a tenured workforce. We're going to learn all about the trials, the tribulations, but the triumph as well from a expert in this field, Josh Bowie. I'm so happy to be able to um, introduce you to our podcast following. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? yourself thanks for having me on absolutely so josh maybe we can start by by kind of defining what exactly is meant by the term tenured team i mean is there really anything different about a team that's tenured is it just a buzzword what's going on here so over the last few years we've heard a lot as supply chain professionals about the mass exodus of baby boomers that we place and how a lot of millennials will come into the workforce. We've given examples of um, the perspective of how to deal, you know, with millennials, but nobody has ever explained from the perspective of what if you're a millennial and now coming into the workforce as an emerging leader. So what we're seeing here is that some new leaders may have um, not as much of experience um, as some of their people on the team. So like right now, um, I currently have one person that has uh, 20 years of experience and I've had two people that have already left, um, retired from my team that has had 25 years or higher. We're starting to see a pretty large um, experience gap between the two groups. So, Josh, do you have any tips on how you earned respect among your tenured team? They a few um, keys to success that I've had is one of the things I had to do is establish quick wins. So. I really had to start off by letting the team see the value and what I was wanting them to achieve. The second thing is really just have to really have to paint the vision for them. And along the way, you have to almost wear two hats. You have to um, sell, to sell somebody on an idea, but also be able to teach them something that they may not already know how to do. What would you say is the biggest thing you have learned through leading tenured teams? It, it, it's really good to see the value of diversity within a team because, you know, um, within, within the group I right now have um, two people that have more experience and then two others that have significantly less. So really, you know, you, you learn that there's space for everyone. And what you use those people for are actually um, to have 
more in a mentor role. So some of the development and stretch activities that I've given um, some of my more senior team members is to, you know, work and develop another person. And oftentimes I found out that they haven't had that experience. So it's a little bit new for them. So it's kind of it's kind of interesting being able to see them push their skill set and also learn how valuable they are. So Josh, I'm curious. How do you translate the past success that your tenured team has had and perhaps the past the expiration date skill set that might come along with some of those um, those past war stories, how do you turn those older best practices into new best practices and current success? Then I think you should have been a lawyer because that was a pretty loaded question. <laughs> but, <laughs> but overall, I think this really relates to your problem-solving ability to be able to, to translate it the way that you're saying because really you have to go and ask these people, why did you do it this way? And really get down to that why. So the thing is that I like to use these people as almost like a consultant. They're definitely a subject matter expert in their own right. Um, so I like to go to them, ask their opinion, dig into the why. And sometimes you may find out that sometimes the, there's nothing that could change in the process it's a very value-added thing that different cross-functional groups need say for example a certain process that has to be done um because it there's some sort of constraint that you need it because that's the way the erp system um operates and you start asking these questions and they can't get down to the answer other than the way that we've always done it. Um, and that's probably where you've identified some low-hanging fruit. Like one example um, found is that my team, whenever I first um, started this role, they were running like 30 different reports every single day. And they would get to all, they would blast it out to all, all members of the organization and asking them, so why do you actually send this to this person and tell me why? And then I would contact that person and they said, oh, well, I just get it, but I just really just delete the email. So they were, <laughs> sometimes you'll find by doing that, that, <laughs> you know, that they're doing this work that's unnecessary, but they've been doing it for years. Getting down to um, the why is probably one of the most important things to translate that over. How has your tenured team handled the COVID crisis? I've seen a lot, a few different things. Say that you know my my team has been very resilient and really making sure that, you know, their safety as well as the safety of others is our number one priority. And, and 
So what I've seen them do is really uh, make sure that they're practicing social distancing. They've even taken it upon themselves to place uh, um, signs endorsing to limit foot traffic within certain areas. And overall, you know, it it's there's some things that have changed. So prior to this, you know, a lot with paper and so one of the things that they've been more interested in is moving more to a digital format so that that way it limits foot traffic so we currently today we have a paper folder that kind of travels the process and so they're really they really have gotten really excited about moving to digital folders within a SharePoint site. And so, you know, it's something new that they've had to learn, um, but at the same time, they're picking it up very quickly. And it was some, I mean, due to that they were engaged in it because it was something that they thought that there was value to that they've, taken the ownership and really have pushed the project along. I think overall, you know, I think people are worried and people are concerned about their own health, maybe not necessarily worried, but concerned and really want to protect themselves and others. And out of it, we're starting to see a little bit of innovation. Well, thank you for joining us, Josh. It's a pleasure having you and very insightful. Much for having me, Marcus and Justin. Look forward to talking to you soon. So now, let's take a moment, sit back in your chair and close your eyes and listen to the soothing voice of Justin as he tells us a supply chain bedtime story. Thank you, Marcus. In this portion of the program, I will attempt to relax you into such a deep state of rest that you will dream of nothing but supply chain. Well, I don't know if that's exactly going to happen, but I do think I have a pretty good story from my everyday life to share with everyone. So last weekend, um, I I was in town, so I guess as a precursor, I live in a pretty remote area of northern Wisconsin. So when I say going to town, that means I drove about 45 minutes to go to the grocery store. It's It's not very exciting, but, you know, it's a big deal for me, right? So last weekend... I'm I'm going into town, and on our, our way back, we decide to go stop by the grocery store because my wife and I are have a little bit of a hankering for a hamburger. It was a beautiful day. I thought I would cook out. It turned out to be a disaster on a number of fronts, mainly because I bought that quick light style charcoal that just explodes right away and then does not actually keep burning. So that was that was a bit of a struggle for me. So I'm walking into the grocery store. Um, I, I see a few people I know, so I talk to them for a few seconds. Go back to the meat section, and I am astounded by the meat price, which shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone based on our stories earlier in the podcast. So what I was confronted with was a pound of hamburger being $7.99. Now, it's important to realize I am an extremely cheap person. So there was no way I was ever going to pay $7.99 for a hamburger. I would rather starve. But um, I did happen to notice before I I left the meat section that they had some larger 
um, packages of hamburger that had a sale price advertised, and those were just $3.99. So I'm standing here in front of the meat aisle, and again, I'm a huge supply chain nerd. I don't think most people would have this reaction. I am just there visibly upset. I'm shaking my head. I'm probably getting all red in the face because I know that there is a, a meat supply crisis going on right now, and I'm presented um, with a situation where I can either pay $7.99 for one pound of hamburger or $3.99 per pound for a four pound package of hamburger. So I don't, I don't know if I'm proud to admit this or not. I do in fact go ahead and buy the four pound package of hamburger for $3.99 a pound. And I go home, we try and do this cookout, ends up being a disaster. I do get a burger at the end of the night and then we end up freezing three pounds of the hamburger. The reason I included this story, Marcus, it's not because it's this awesome, crazy action adventure of a story, but it's a very simple example of how each and every one of us are impacted by these core concepts of supply chain. It's not just those of us who are lucky enough to work in supply chain. It's every single one of us, or at least every single one of us that ever has to buy any groceries, right? So the, the takeaways here first for me is what is the real purpose of a quantity discount? I mean, as you heard from our previous stories, we're in a situation now where meat is hard to come by and when you do get it, it's expensive. Typically to me, offering a quantity discount when you're buying something uh, in, a, in a more bulk quantity is to increase demand. It's a great sales strategy to implement when you have excess supply, but a terrible one to implement when you are at the capacity of your bottleneck operation here. And you know, Justin, we really do see this everywhere. Another example that comes to mind is toilet paper. For the last few months, it's been very hard to get toilet paper because when it appears, people buy a lot of it. And the bullwhip effect is huge on this. It goes all the way to the suppliers, and we've heard so many stories of suppliers working overtime and increasing capacity. But one of the things to think about is now a lot of people have maybe six months worth of toilet paper. So when we return to a semi-normal state, they won't need to buy toilet paper for a while, and then you have all these toilet paper manufacturers that are going at full capacity they're going to produce so much toilet paper and then demand is just going to drop off. And then that's the other side of the bullwhip effect is at the end of all this, there's going to be this huge surplus of inventory in the system, in the pipeline. Yeah, I completely agree, Marcus. So I think the question becomes, what can we as everyday grocery shoppers do to help the situation help the little old lady at the end of the street get her toilet paper and at the same time maybe decrease the amount of time it takes uh, for meat prices to get back to normal so it turns out there's actually a way for us to sort of quantify this and it's very easy to do just while you're in the grocery store take what you buy the variation of what you buy and divide that by the variation in what you use so for the story i just told I typically buy between one to zero pound of, of ground beef per week because I typically use somewhere between zero to one pound of ground beef per week. In this scenario, I made the decision to actually buy four pounds instead of the usual one I buy. 
So in this case, my variation for purchasing was three, right? So I, I varied from my usual behavior pattern by three. My output variation in this instance, or what I'm consuming, didn't change drastically from my normal variation, which is one. I usually use somewhere between zero to one per week. So in this instance, I've actually made the local northern Wisconsin ground beef supply chain three times worse by my actions, which obviously as I was doing this calculation, um, leaving the grocery store, it made me feel very, very bad, right? Because I'm making this problem worse. But I think it's a really uh, clever, simple, and fun, at least if you're kind of a supply chain nerd like me, thing to do when we're making different purchasing decisions to kind of just get a measure and get a feel uh, for what our impact is on, on this massive supply chain issue that's going on right now. And Justin, another way that we as consumers can help when manufacturers are at capacity and there is this rampant bullwhip effect is to consider replacement goods. So, for example, as we were talking about earlier, rather than purchasing meat, you could look at the plant-based substitutes, which now are a lot more price competitive with the increased price in meats. Yeah, great point, Marcus. Completely agree. Replacement goods are a fantastic way to lessen the impact of the bullwhip effect. Well, Justin, I would consider that more of a nightmare than a bedtime story, but still a great <laughs> supply chain story, and I think we can all learn a lot from it. The bullwhip effect really is everywhere in our lives, and it's one of those things that you don't really think about much, but everyone has an impact on it. So it's a great thing to be aware of, and I love the idea of running through that calculation in your head at the store and thinking about how much you're contributing to supply chain stress. Well, friends, I'm afraid we're all out of time for this, our very first episode of the Strongest Link Supply Chain Podcast. I know I had a ton of fun recording this and we are super pumped to get right back at her and start recording more and more of these episodes to continue our mission of bringing supply chain core concepts and increasing supply chain knowledge in everyone, not just supply chain practitioners. So if you could, please subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast and we'll catch you back on our next episode. Thank you and good night.